the AC Podcast. This is Andy Steiger, and today I have special guest David Gretzky. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you, Andy. Great to be here. Now, David, you are the president, CEO, resident theologian of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. Tell us a little bit about the role that you play there with EFC. Sure. I am, yet yeah, as you mentioned, president, and so I oversee the entire kind of ministry of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. We are an association of denominations. We have about 48 denominations, about 33 post-secondary schools, 70-some organizations, and, and a whole bunch of congregations working together for common cause of the gospel. We do things in public policy. Uh, we we have uh, do some court interventions. Uh, we do research on the church in Canada. And we do all kinds of ministry partnerships and publications as well. We have a couple magazines, some podcasts. So really trying to to help the churches, help uh, Christian organizations, and really be a, a voice of biblical principles into the public square. That, that's a, such a needed work. And even just hearing you talk about that sounds busy. Before we jumped on this call, you were telling me about just all the places you've traveled now i get it man you guys you guys are doing a lot well it's an honor and uh, there's there's many challenges but i'm i'm optimistic uh, you know if the church works together um you know jesus certainly says uh, the world will know we're his disciples by how we love one another and i think how we work together as well so for for the gospel i think we have to work together I think that's an important conversation that I'm hearing more and more from both churches and parachurch organizations, that here in Canada particularly, we need to learn to be better organized and work together. Yes, absolutely. And pray together. <laughs> and pray together. Uh, you're, yeah. you're absolutely right. And that's something even for us as an organization that uh, we, we've really taken seriously. And those of you who follow us here at Apologize Canada, you'll know uh, we just sent out a, a letter. And if you didn't receive that, that's all right. You're hearing this. Uh, we've actually started a prayer a ministry for Apologetics Canada and all the places that we are and where we're speaking into that we're just realizing more and more that prayer unites us, but also that we need we need prayer. This, these are challenging times and we need uh, to be praying for each other. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, we, we've, we've been focusing on prayer for sure as well. We've been running several events in the last year, uh, not, uh, kind of regional events and I'm, you know, as a leader, I've been really trying to ensure that prayer is actually part of my daily regime, not just in terms of personal prayer, but but actually incorporating prayer into our organization and, and figuring out how to do that in a, a you know, a really um, God honoring way, but but really truly seeking seeking the Spirit. So I, I'm I'm thrilled to hear that. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks. And, and for you listeners, if you're interested in joining our prayer team, you can just email us at info at apologeticscanada.com and we will uh, add you to that. Now, David, you and I have crossed paths a number of times uh, in exotic locations from, <laughs> yeah. from Switzerland to Romania. You and I have been involved in the academic work of what's broadly referred to as IVR or the World Congress in Philosophy of Law. Uh, those of you who followed Apologetics Kennedy, you've probably heard me talk about that before. These are areas where we've uh, AC, where I have uh, spoken and written, and so has David. And most recent project that we participated in was in the area of rights of conscience, and I spoke on the area of made. 
that's a, an article that that I've talked about before, and I th- have shared that the, those presentations, those papers that were written, are being published as a part of the Supreme Court Law Review here in Canada. Now, David, what paper did you present uh, at IVR? Right, I, I did a paper. I think I called it something along the lines of a the a theo legal perspective on conscientious uh, claims. And so I gave uh, what I called a three-dimensional criterion uh, using sort of a vertical, horizontal, inner dimensions for conscience to help help judges adjudicate, you know, what's a legitimate conscience claim versus a spurious conscience claim. And so I was using theological categories in the hopes that certainly it's arising from a theological biblical perspective, but also could be more broadly applied to to society so that there's just not uh, spurious uh, conscience claims. Well, today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about uh, MADE, if that's a new word for you here in Canada. And I'm, I'm, I'm always surprised, you know, when I'll talk with people and they've never heard about medical assistance in dying that takes place here in Canada. I was actually talking with my neighbor not too long ago as he was asking, hey, what were you speaking on there in Romania? And, and he had never, he'd never heard of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also find that some people may in Canada know that this is taking place with with people that can have a physician in their life, but some don't realize that there's something something called an effective referral and other aspects of this law and how it's expanding. So, in the show today, we're going to get into some of the details and let you know where things are at in Canada. I think it's important to be informed, particularly from a Christian perspective. And to understand uh, where things are at and what we can do, particularly with the challenges that we face around this issue here in Canada. Uh, This is an issue of human dignity. This is an issue of rights of conscience. Uh, I think one of the areas that's often not talked about is the, the conscience of the physician. We often think about the patient. But these days, uh, I would argue more and more, we need to be thinking about the doctors and the medical professionals that are having to navigate the challenges that are before them. So let's get into that. Uh, David, can you just take a moment to explain what MADE is and how it came about here in Canada? Sure. So uh, the terminology we're using in Canada, MADE, medical assistance in dying or medically assisted assistance in dying, is... um, kind of the overarching term that we're using for both uh, euthanasia and assisted suicide. And there, there are some slight differences. Sometimes people see them as the same thing, but euthanasia is really technically um, a third party in Canada. Of course, it'd be a physician or uh, a medical professional who's um, ending someone's life uh, at their request. And assisted suicide is... Um, when a person is given some kind of um, aid or some kind of uh, device or pharmaceutical that they can administer on their own. And practically, so the the laws in Canada cover both euthanasia and assisted suicide, but practically about 99.9% of all made deaths in Canada are euthanasia. There's only very, very small numbers of people who are are opting to use uh, assisted suicide. It came about, there's a series of court cases back really uh, to the 90s, um, uh, people challenging um, the, the right to die. They said that the charter protects both the, the right to life, but also the right to die. 
that all eventually culminated after a series of court cases in about 2015. There was an important court case that was decided, Supreme Court case called Carter that was decided. And then uh, the Supreme Court said that um, the uh, right to die was, was, uh, was, uh, needed to be constitutionally uh, protected, and they gave Parliament a chance to create laws. So by 2016, there was legislation that came in. It was basically a change to the criminal code, which said, up until that time said that um, a uh, anyone who assisted someone else in in their death would be criminally responsible. Uh, but they exempted medical professionals. That's really what the made law was in 2016: an exemption in the criminal code from medical professionals. And so then the, the uh, legalization of euthanasia and assisted suicide took place around 2016. At that time, um, the, the law basically laid out and said um, only those whose deaths were, quote-unquote, reasonably foreseeable. And in practice, that kind of worked out somewhere around, in practice for most doctors were seen as somewhere between, you know, any time between now and a year, um, if they saw someone was going to be dying within that time period, probably from some kind of terminal illness, then they would be eligible. Now, there was a challenge to that, and uh, that eventually led to uh, another case uh, coming out of Quebec. And that, that, that opened up the law uh, to say that there were options for people who weren't necessarily whose death wasn't reasonably foreseeable in the near future, but people who had chronic illnesses and so on. And so the law, the expansion to May took place in 2021. Now, there's a couple things here I think that will be important for people to appreciate. The first is uh, this law, this case didn't come out of of nowhere. There, in fact, were a series of lawsuits Mm -hmm. that led up to ultimately the Carter uh, decision. Now, do you want to provide any background to that? Sure. Well, the, probably the the deep case that really opened the door was the Rodriguez case in 1993. Sue Rodriguez um, had ALS, and she was the one who challenged uh, the ban, the criminal code ban on assisted suicide. And she argued that that you know the Charter of Right you know guaranteed the right to death. <laughs> it, it, it guarantees a right to life, but that implies also a right to death. And at that time in 93, that that went all the way to the Supreme Court, but the the judges were split. It was five to four decision, and they, they didn't rule in favor of Rodriguez. But as, as I've kind of seen it and, and other legal scholars have seen it, that really opened the door because you had a split Supreme Court. And so um, then there was the, you know, in other words, it was just case. a matter of time. Yeah, like it, it, I think once you have a, a split on the Supreme Court like that, it, it shows a changing culture. It shows a changing tide of, of uh, thinking. And um, so I think that, although it maintained the status quo in, in 93, it, it opened the door. And, and so that's when Carter came about. And um, that's when the, at the Supreme Court, uh, Carter was another person who, uh, I, I believe her, Kay Carter, she was from BC. That case started way back in 2011. Took, took till about 2015 to to wend its way through to the Supreme Court, but that's when the Supreme Court then judged and said um, that is um, that position of suicide, uh, the prohibition against physician assisted suicide was unconstitutional, and that's uh, now it's really important to understand that when when how the courts work. I think sometimes people 
misunderstand how the courts were. All the court ruled was is that physician-assisted suicide was unconstitutional. The, the ban against physician-assisted suicide was unconstitutional. And they gave Parliament the chance to enact laws. The courts didn't necessarily say that that the the uh, House of Commons or Parliament had to create a constitutionally protected um, right to assisted suicide. They just simply ruled that that it was the the current ban was unconstitutional. So they could have actually technically made new legislation, sought to make the legislation constitutional to to protect the ban against the suicide, assisted suicide. But it actually went the other way, and they actually opened it up at that point. Now, what's always interesting with these sorts of cases, and as I've talked with different M- different MPs that were a part of this, particularly that were um, arguing against where it where it ultimately went, is the slippery slope argument because you know these these sorts of cases often get put forward with extreme examples of, for example, people that are in in pain or, or, you know, that you, you get these extreme examples of, okay, it's this extreme pain and, you know, wouldn't you want to end their suffering and those sorts of things, but it quickly goes from this extreme example into a slippery slope argument where it rapidly expands. And I remember in 2016 talking with people where, you know, it was constantly being assured, listen, no, this, this is, this is as far as we're going to go. We're not going to, not going to go any, any further. And then man, did it rapidly expand into this day continues to expand rapidly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and the amazing thing here in Canada is that of course there's, there's other places throughout the world that have preceded us in terms of having legalized euthanasia assisted suicide. But in the course of, you know, five, six years, Canada went from not having any legalization of euthanasia to uh, coming as of, of March, particular March 2024, and I'm sure we'll talk about that briefly. Is uh, I, you know, I would argue that Canada will have the most "quote unquote" progressive euthanasia uh, regime in the world, and, and this is one of our great concerns about the EFC. Is like we've opposed uh, euthanasia right from the start, but it, I, I, I do agree. The, the slippery slope argument is sometimes overused. You and I both know that, Andy. Like, like sometimes it, it's not a legitimate argument. But there are, there are such things as slippery slopes. And I think we're actually seeing that work itself out here in how the law has continually opened up and expanded access in, the la- in, in you know, a short five years, five, six years. Yeah, and, and it's interesting too, to put it in perspective, say, with our neighbors to the south in the United States, where what we're talking about here is that in Canada in particular, you you have the physicians that are administering death versus, say, in the United States, you, you know, you need to get a pharmaceutical, for example, a prescription to take your own life. So, we're talking about assisted suicide. And as you already mentioned, the vast, vast majority of people don't, in fact, want to take their own life. They want a physician to take their life. And I have actually no. That's I'm glad you raised that, Andy, because I've actually noted that as a really important phenomenon to, to observe. That there is apparently still, even though we have the option in Canada, either euthanasia or assisted suicide, 
the tendency is just completely over towards euthanasia. Um, I had, I know the stats for 2022 just came out about a month ago. Um, the government has to kind of keep track of, of um, how things are going in Canada relative to, to MAID. But I know in 2021, there was probably only about seven people out of 10,000. Um, there were about, about 10,000 MAID deaths in Canada in 2021 that opted for assisted suicide. Mm. So you're absolutely right. There's the, we're, we're in a kind of a completely different regime here in Canada than the places in like in the our neighbors to the south where there's uh, much more an emphasis on accessibility to assisted suicide. And, and one of the effects here that I want to talk about before we get into how this law is continuing to expand, I think it's important to appreciate if you put yourself into the shoes of the medical professionals, if you if you see things from their perspective, you're you're seeing a profession that is really experiencing moral fatigue. They are they are being requested not only to participate in made by if if it's say administering death, but to provide what's referred to as an effective referral. Now, David, where is an effective referral in Canada being mandated, and what does it mean? So I think very technically that the two play, the, the effective referral comes from the colleges of uh, physicians and surgeons. So we, we have to remember that the federal legislation pertains to the criminal code in terms of the regulate, regulation of how MAID is, is done and the role of physicians and so on. That's always provincially um, regulated and usually regulated through the professional bodies, the the colleges of physicians. So I think very technically in Canada, Ontario and Nova Scotia, they, their colleges, their professional colleges of physicians and surgeons um, have um, the effective referral type of policies. And Quebec actually has, as I understand it, legislation built in that, that not just the college professional guidelines, but legislation that actually also requires effective referral. And, and as far as that, that goes, so those three provinces in particular are the ones that are, are especially dealing with this. Other provinces do have varied kinds of legislative and professional uh, safeguards. Manitoba is one of the stronger provinces with uh, safeguards for conscientious objectors, uh, but other provinces do have that protection as well. But, no. but in terms, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, uh, we don't we don't have time to get into it completely, but now there was uh, legal action taken by the uh, Christian Medical and Dental Association and against particularly effective referrals in Ontario, but yep. the courts did uphold the college's position on that. And if, again, if people are interested in this subject, this is part of the paper that I wrote, and if you write to us here at Apologetics Canada, we'd be happy to make that available to you. But it's placed a lot of pressure on these physicians, particularly those who conscientiously do not want to participate in inmate, where they're now being required to provide this effective referral. And so, at some level, they're, they're, they're made complicit in this Especially given that the high percentage, it's a very high, over 80% of those that are seeking MAID actually receive uh, MAID. So, in other words, 
you're being asked by if a, if a physician is being asked by a patient for a referral, that physician knows that that patient most likely will receive made. And so it raises these deep moral questions about whether or not you should be requiring that of a physician, particularly when they object. Right. Well, and I think what's what uh, your listeners probably need to be aware of is what that effective referral is really asking them to do. Right. Like we might we might not fully understand what it how this type of effective referral is maybe different from some of the other things that physicians are sometimes asked to do. Um, in, in general, like physicians can refuse to provide certain types of therapies if it's against their conscience. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, of course, take, take for example, um, many Catholic doctors, for example, won't provide uh, birth control. That, that's a conscientious objection that Catholic uh, physicians might have um, or, or uh, sterilization or, or those types of procedures or abortions for, for another obvious example. But it seems that in terms of made, these professional obligations for effective referral have been made almost as special case. Um, whereas in other cases, they've been given some conscientious room. Uh, in, in this case, it seems like there's this requirement for effective referral. And, and really what effective referral is saying is that a physician can object. They do not have to participate in providing MAID, but they are professionally obligated to make sure and follow through with a patient who comes to them to ensure that the patient actually gets it. And, and I think that uh, a lot of uh, ethicists and, and physicians themselves um, are, are so, so um, they, they just re- recognize that this is a complicity. It is a kind of a, a moral complicity. Mm-hmm. It's if, you, if, if a friend or someone that I knew asked me to, to come and, and do something that was, I was morally objectionable to, even if it wasn't illegal, and I was morally objectionable to to participating, but then I said, "But I know someone who can help you, you know, to do that." Um, I might be able to say, "Well, I didn't participate in it directly, but I've actually aided and abetted someone else to go ahead and do something that I myself find morally objectionable, even if it's legal." Now, now that's an important piece here: uh, this legality of it. Okay, so it, so it's legal, and I find it's interesting here in Canada how legalizing something can so quickly change people's thoughts on a thing. So, mm-hmm. I have a friend who worked in palliative care. She was a nurse in palliative care for many years. And she said, Andy, before MAID became legal, she said 90% of our staff, you know, nurses and doctors were opposed. As soon as it became legal, it flipped the other way. Mm-hmm. You know, 90, 90% now were in favor. Here's where the slippery slope uh, becomes deeply problematic when you've got something like made legislation that is rapidly expanding. So you've got this phenomenon that that I call a static decree that our physicians must refer in places like Ontario, Nova Scotia, and and Quebec. So they they must refer. But yet you've got a law that is rapidly expanding. It is a dynamic law. That raises the question, well, at what point in this expansion of the law are you re- reaching a, a juncture where you are forcing the, the physician now uh, to participate in civil disobedience? 
you know right. at, at what point now does the the even though it's made legal in Canada it is now crossing over a threshold where humanity's saying whoa, whoa whoa we've got a problem here and I, and I just want to raise this real quick here David and I want to get your response yep. to it because even the United Nations has raised concern and warned that Canada could be in violation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and a number of international agreements in which they write, we wish to express our grave concern that provisions contained in the bill may be contrary to Canada's international obligations to respect, protect, and fulfill the core right and uh, equality and non-discrimination of persons with disabilities. Now, specifically, and, and I want to move into this next, the UN is referring to the next expansion that you've already uh, alluded to that's taking place, that could be taking place March 2024. So let's get into that. Where is it expanding, and how do you, how do you respond to that static dynamic challenge that's being placed on our physicians? Yeah, thanks. That that brings it up to to very very important point. The the 2021 expansion passed um, those who have reasonably foreseeable death uh, to include chronic conditions in 2021 uh, when that uh, that was Bill um, C seven C seven that bill expanded it both to those with non reasonably foreseeable and chronic conditions, and mental health issues, mental health diagnoses. And so at that time in the in Bill C-7 was passed in 21, there was a delay and said that by 2023, March 2023, was when um, Made for Mental Illness um, uh, alone would, would open up. So you didn't have to have any other underlying conditions. You could have, as long as you had a, uh, a diagnosed mental health uh, issue you could be eligible for aid. That was postponed. Uh, there was there was some pushback, and that was actually postponed till March 2024. So that's what we're talking about, March 2024, the expansion to mental illness alone. And and in terms of that, the, I, I think you you illustrate the slippery slope very well relative to that because um, I've actually been in rooms where I've been listening to doctors who are actually and specialists, mental health specialists, and palliative care doctors included, who in principle are actually um, in favor of MAID, but who are expressing grave, grave concern about how opening up to mental health issues has gone far past what they originally supported the MAID law. So, so the... Um, sort of the objection to opening made to mental health is not just simply sort of a moral or a religious kind of objection. There's significant professional, um, uh, professional, um, you know, well, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> concern? <laughs> professional concerns or objections. Yes. To, to opening it up to made for mental illness. So now let's yeah. let's just talk about that because there's a couple that are obvious that uh, I've also had professionals raise these concerns with me and and different uh, politicians. For example, raising the concern that when it comes to mental health, we do not have mm. a healthy <laughs> medical system. That it can take upwards of six months, you know, or around six months for a person to get mental health uh, help. 
in the Canadian mental medical system. Whereas, uh, from what I understand, you can get made within three months. So this this alone raises a real challenge. So we're saying, okay, we're going to provide made for you quicker than we're going to provide me- help with uh, your mental distress. And one of the real ironies here, of course, is that as I've talked with different people that have gone through a mental uh, uh, a crisis of mental health, they're uh, they're the first thing that they're told is don't make any rash rash decisions. Don't make any big life-changing decisions. Don't go selling your house or quitting your job. And so, there's a real irony, isn't there, David, where it's like, okay, but we're going to help you to take your own life. I can't imagine something more (laughs) uh, life-changing, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, at least fortunately, if when when it comes through in March, at least there still is supposed to be a 90-day uh, cooling off period. So at least there is still that with mel- mental health issues. Um, but I agree. It, it, it's, it's a, it's a paradox. It's an irony. Uh, the other paradox is, is that on the one hand, we, we talk fairly regularly in our society about mental health issues and suicide prevention, for example. And so, uh, that, that itself, suicidal ideation is one of the issues in mental health. Like people might have other underlying conditions, they might have other mental health issues, but certainly um, if someone comes in saying that they're having thoughts about uh, ending their lives from a professional perspective, this is what mental health and psychiatry and psychology is supposed to be addressing, right? I think the other irony for me is, and, and I think this is perhaps what I'm hearing from at least some some of the psychiatric community, is they're saying... It, there's no consensus. There's no scientific or, or professional consensus on exactly which mental illnesses are resistant to therapy. And, and you can have one person who responds very well to a course of therapy, whether it's pharmaceutical or uh, talk therapy, whatever, whatever therapies might be available. Some respond and some don't, right? And, and sometimes it takes courses of two, three, four, or five different types of uh, attempts to, to find the right therapy before you can find one that actually is working. So it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to predict which therapies will be resistant. I think that's the intention. The intention is to open made up. To be fair, I think that's the intention behind the expansion for mental illness is it's, it's to open it up to people whose um, uh, find that they're resistant to therapy, but but the the guidelines are very minimal. There's no guidelines that haven't been laid out that says that a person has to actually even try therapy in order to be eligible. As long as they can get a mental health professional to sign off on it, they they could go ahead with it. I, I think, like for example, in the Netherlands, uh, as I understand the law there, psychiatrists cannot sign off on euthanasia with a patient unless they are convinced that the patient has actually tried various therapies and found them wanting and and then just they they just have not been successful but until a, a patient actually tries some of those therapies at least legally in the Netherlands they're not supposed to be able to sign off on euthanasia that yep. that restriction is not being uh, put in place at, at least as of today that 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 guideline, that restriction has not been put in place in Canada. Now, this this raises a bigger concern of what's been taking place within the health profession. 
in in Canada, but and and elsewhere, including the United States and 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 others. And that is, what is the nature of medicine today? Now, uh, traditionally, medicine was about health care. It was about bringing people into a healthy state of being. But more and more, what we're seeing is what's being referred to as a provider of services model, where now, and in many ways, this is just an implication of what I would think of as just extreme individualism that rules the day today. And in fact, as I've talked with different politicians on this that have been in the debates, they would say that this is ideologically driven. The mm. The legislation that's taking place is, is very much driven from that uh, you-know-what's-best sort of idea. Instead of the doctor being the professional and seeking the health of the patient, now it's become providing what the patient wants. You know, absolutely. The irony of there, of course, is that in many other instances, um, if a patient were to come in, let's let's take diabetes. They've they've been diagnosed with diabetes, and they come in and they demand of their doctor to go under a, a course of treatment that has nothing to do and no scientific evidence that it's going to help their diabetes. A doctor would 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 generally just simply say, no, I'm not going to do that. It's not within your best interest as a patient to, to take that therapy that, that is known not to, to be of help. So doctors aren't required to just do whatever a patient asks, right? If a patient comes into a clinic or to the hospital, they don't necessarily get what they're asking for. But on MAID, it seems like this is kind of an exception, uh, one of the exceptions at least, where the doctor is is obligated that if the patient um, requests it, um, and and that's a diagnose uh, a diagnosis that they have, it's it's almost like the the doctor is effectively required to provide the service, which goes just runs contrary to to how how the rest of medicine works. There's another issue, Andy. I want to raise this too because yeah. I, I don't think it's been talked about very much as well as. The extent to which this will shift, and, and we, we will wait to see how how long this will take, but if there is a level of trust, and I think there's generally still a high level of trust amongst the public towards the medical profession, as doctors become more and more um, involved in the ending of life, it's going to change the level of trust that patients have with their doctors, with their medical professionals. Because on the one hand, they're going there uh, hoping that the doctor has their life interest in their hands and that they're going to do that which is, is best for them. Um, but if, if one moment the doctor is uh, there to, to help you, to sustain your life, but then in the next minute upon your request is there to end your life or to, to recommend even towards that direction or imply towards that re re uh, direction, or even if there's pressures from the family, there's the whole social issue that's that uh, we're still trying to figure out uh, what, what what kind of effect is this going to have on our social relationships and our familiar relationships when a family is divided on maybe a parent or grandparent's decision to have made and half the family is a supportive and half the family isn't. Um, there's going to be significant social and familial breach and 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 uh, breakage as well. Agreed. I mean that that alone could be a a whole uh, podcast just talking on on that issue. Uh, to to let's continue on this path though of staying focused on uh, mental health. 
Mm-hmm. And that there's there's a few more things to talk about here. One is is that we had an MP by the name of Ed Fast. He's actually from the writing here where I'm located in Abbotsford that put forward a bill. Tell me, tell me about that bill that he put forward that sadly didn't go through. Yeah, there was a bill, uh, Bill C three fourteen, that that came before Parliament here. Um, just a few weeks uh, prior to, to our podcast here. And uh, Ed Fast was actually asking uh, Parliament to consider uh, stopping made for mental illness entirely. And so that uh, vote came to Parliament. And unfortunately, that bill was defeated. Had, had it been successful, um, they would have stopped um, the, the, the progression <laughs> towards made for mental illness. It was narrowly defeated. I believe it was 167 to 150 in Parliament. What was heartening, in, in our opinion, at least from the EFC, is, is that there seemed to be support from, from all parties towards this bill. Now, it's not clear entirely why uh, everyone necessarily supported it. Some might have supported the bill to stop made for mental illness simply because they don't believe the system is prepared. The, the medical system or the, the professional system is, is prepared. And there are mental health uh, proponents of MAID for mental illness who themselves are saying, but we're not ready. We don't have the, the safeguards in place. Um, so some, someone who might have supported it uh, and on that level might have, might have supported the bill, even though they're in principle <laughs> Uh, supportive of made for mental illness but there were uh people from all um, mps from all parties that actually did vote in favor of the bill so that at the very least in my perspective shows that there seems to be at least a a a significant portion of people who who feel we're not ready that there's not sufficient safeguards the efc did some polling ourselves we did some national polling here about a month ago and we found that even amongst people who were supportive of made for mental illness, a, a large number, 62% of Canadians actually said that uh, made for mental illness should only be made available um, with proper safeguards in place. And many, many people didn't feel that uh, there are proper safeguards being proposed. So, so that that speaks to there, there, there's you know at least I'm heartened that there's at least a kind of a reconsideration of uh, is is this the right thing to do now i mean that that raises a whole nother set of issues because we've already seen places like quebec and elsewhere have reported that even the safeguards that are currently in place uh are uh, are often not actually being adhered to that's yep. again just a very loose uh regulation on on how this is playing out which is kind of ironic because they're they're even it's not like they're hiding from it like it the they've actually take quite detailed notes on who's mm-hmm. uh, getting made why they're getting made and and whether or not certain safeguards were actually abided by or not yeah and one thing that i've raised and others have raised this as well is is that the the nature of the provision of made is itself very very private right it's often done in a closed room it's uh, with you know one or two people present, uh, medical professionals, and there are some requirements. Like uh, it's still legally required that a patient gives consent in the last minutes before they receive MAID. But because this is all happening behind, often behind closed doors, um, we just don't know. I'm not saying I, I have no idea. <laughs> 
Uh, how often is that consent actually being asked for at the bedside? Um, one would hope they are they're doing that, but we really don't know, right? We really don't know. One would hope that the integrity of the doctor or the professional would say that yes, they did do this, but but there's who's watching that, right? Who, who's watching that these provisions are actually followed? And I think that's a little bit what you're alluding to is is that even though that there might be some safeguards, the very nature of how it's how it's operate the operation of this, you know, is being a rather private affair, and and so. Uh, and, and there's no way to verify that. You can't, you can't ask a patient afterwards, a made patient afterwards, did the professional follow the rules? Right. And so, by the way, with what I was referring to, and this is uh, made available on the Government of Canada's website, uh, it just documented that it's been reported that 60% of euthanasia cases that had the 10-day reflection period waived. And the and of these cases, 48% did not meet the criminal code criteria of removal, and 26% had no documented reason for waiving the reflection period. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's already kind of this loose looseness to the way it's playing out. And then again, there's that concern as it further expands. Let's talk about this as we close, David. Uh, one is, is why, why, should, why should we care about you know, medical assistance in dying, you know, this is a, is this just a political issue? Why are we talking about this and what can we do about it? So I'd say there's two levels at, at the, the highest level is, is just about medical assistance in dying alone and, and euthanasia and assisted suicide. We have to remember that these, these are lives that are being taken. Um, and, and, uh, and for various reasons, right. It's not always just because of pain and suffering Many, many people uh, insist that the reason they're getting made is that loss of meaning in their life, loss of social connection. And that's, those are actually two of the higher reasons that people are um, getting made, even though they might have some kind of chronic or terminal illness. So, so there's the, the high level uh, question about uh, the, the, the ethics and morality of made. But at the level of mental illness, I think there's a qualitative shift that has taken place because with mental illness, especially because you know some of those mental illnesses that people are struggling with—depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation—are the very conditions <laughs> um, which need to be treated, right? And which uh, made is actually being offered as a therapy, to which traditionally we would have said that needs to be treated. Suicidal ideation needs well, to be treated. That's, an, so that's the to, irony, isn't it, yeah. David? Because made is actually referred to as a treatment. A treatment, yes, or a therapy, yeah. and but but I think the the crucial element here, as as we've put it at the EFC, is it it highlights that some of the most vulnerable people um, are are being opened up to made, and it, and 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 it just seems hard to understand how someone struggling, for example, with depression and suicidal ideation, is being offered the very thing. <laughs> Uh, that they're struggling against. They, a person who's struggling with thoughts of suicide, um, to be offered suicide is, is to offer something to them in their most vulnerable, vulnerable moments. It's like offering a, a, a drug to an addict, right? Um, that somehow the solution to your addiction is more of the same. 
right? And so I think that that is our greatest concern. I think there's a significant qualitative shift that has taken place because this is a signal to our larger society. This is how we're officially offering to treat some of the most vulnerable in our midst. Yeah. And that's a tragedy. Yeah, I think it's important as as a Christian, we value human life. And there are moments that we we need to speak up. I find it interesting, of course, that there's been these moments throughout history where Christians have spoken up against various atrocities from slavery to, you know, you name it. And and it's interesting as you kind of look back because we think, oh man, what those people, what heroes. But then you find yourself in your own historical moment going, yeah, but you're in your own historical moment. Are you speaking up to the atrocities that are taking place in our own midst? Absolutely. I, now, what um, can, how can we speak up, David? What can we do? So I think there's both word and word and deed. I mean, we, we need to continue on the public policy side. I think that there has been some promising pressure at the public policy side. So contacting MPs, letting them know that um, we, we, we aren't uh, in favor of the expansion of MAID. Um, they, they need to hear our voices. That's certainly one way. We need to pray. We absolutely need to pray. Um, prayer is, not, is um, not the only thing we can do, but everything that we do should, should come out of prayer. Um, but I think at, at the other side is just to, to return really quickly back to the, the surveys of, of patients who are go ahead and receive made. They do sort of a, um, a questionnaire before they, they actually receive the procedures. Um, the, the one, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the one of the top two reasons that, that people choose it is not because of the, the suffering or the pain. That's about number four or five on the list. But the top reason is loss of meaning, loss of purpose. Uh, people who are struggling through illness often feel isolated socially as well. So the loss of purpose and the loss of social connection are two of the top reasons that people choose made. <laughs> and and uh, from the perspective of the church, well, guess what? We, we, we have something we can offer there. We can offer purpose. We can offer uh, a perspective on the meaning of life and the meaning of suffering for that matter. And we can also offer social uh, support, friendship, genuine friendship and fellowship with people who are isolated and who are vulnerable. And uh, one only wonders, you know, uh, how, how often if um, someone who's been socially isolated in their illness were befriended and, and actually cared for, um, how many times that reversal, uh, reversal might take place in their thinking. And so this is an area that I think the church, so we're going to really have to think hard and, and act hard on, on how we come alongside those with mental illness. This has been an area that the church has, has not always been easy to deal with, but we have to come with compassion alongside those who are struggling with mental illnesses and supports. Like, what are the supports that the church can offer uh, those who are most vulnerable? So we need to pray and strategize about those as well. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I wonder if if it's not too distant that the church would even be barred from trying to talk somebody out of suicide. Yeah, I think I think that that's a possibility. Um, I'm not sure I know exactly what is asked of a patient at the last moments. Like, is a patient asked, um, are you, I know they're supposed to consent to it in the last moments. They still have to consent. I don't know what questions are asked. Are, are you under any duress from anyone else, for example, right? And, and if, if they might, if, if someone started saying, well, 
I'm not doing this because my pastor told me not. Um, right. I mean, that that's that's an interesting point of itself, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, because we would see uh, killing as a sin, and and particularly, you know, taking your own life would would still qualify as as uh, killing. And for the Catholics, even they would refer they would call this a mortal sin. Yes. Yeah. For sure. I, I find it interesting to, as a bit of a thought experiment to that how we would react so differently if we came across someone um, standing on a bridge who was about to take their life. Our response would be significantly um, different than the response that that sometimes we're being tempted to give to uh, a person lying in a hospital bed, as if the the there's a qualitative difference between what's happening, but it's not from, from a moral perspective. I don't think there really is a qualitative difference, but the, the social setting, the, the professionalization of made within the medical system has sort of sanitized exactly what's going on. Um, whereas if it were being done out in the open public, someone's about to commit suicide, we might even violently tackle them to the ground to prevent them from, from committing suicide. Right. And we would actually see that as heroic. And we'd see that as heroic, yes. Yeah. What a what a reversal that's taken place. And as you said, this is something that we absolutely need to be in prayer about and that we need to to be willing to 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 speak about. And so I'm thankful, uh, listeners, that you've uh, stuck out and listened and informed yourself on what is going on in Canada. That is the first step, I think, wouldn't you agree, David? That we gotta absolutely. actually know what's going on. Absolutely. And pray. And pray. Yeah. So, uh, David, I want to I want to thank you uh, for joining us on the AC podcast. It's been a real privilege uh, having you join us. If people want to learn more about the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, where would you send them? Uh, just go to www.theefc.ca. Great. Uh, again, thank you for joining us. This uh, podcast has been a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll be back next week with more things to think about. Until then, love God, love people. Bye for now. It's the AC Podcast.